If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Before it's mechanised, before you have um, a power shuttle, yeah. you have to throw the shuttle right. <laughs> um, across the loom, and it is, it, is, it is very, very physical. That was Simon Thurley on the strength that was needed by weavers before the process became mechanised. By spinning the globe uh, around a particular time, we've been interested to try and vary the sorts of things that we're looking at, you know, maybe war, maybe politics, maybe culture. But at the same time, if there is a theme that, that's come out, I guess it's, it's the unexpected connection. And that was Michael Scott discussing his new radio series, Spin the Globe. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. In 1771, Richard Arkwright built the world's first successful water-powered cotton spinning mill at Cromford in Derbyshire. It was an event that's seen by many as the birth of the modern factory system. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met Simon Thurley, the chief executive of English Heritage, at Cromford Mills, to find out how the site differed from the dark satanic mills of the later Industrial Revolution. Right, so um, Simon, we're in 
Cromford Mills in, in Derbyshire. Mm. Um, tell us a little bit about this mill. Why is it so? Why is this one so special? Well, first of all, it's the it's the first, and that I think is um, pretty big accolade considering mm. it's such a long time ago. I mean, yeah. this is built in the 1770s, um, and it's built at a time when sort of the organisation of large numbers of workers in a single place um, and a substantial degree of mechanisation just didn't exist anywhere else. And yeah. one of the things I think, just just sitting here in the in the sun, actually looking around at mm. the mills around us, is it almost sort of seems like a prison on the inside. Yeah. Not because it's yeah. grim, but because it's so enclosed. And the important point really was is that what Richard Arkwright was doing here was, of its time, totally cutting-edge technology. Mm. The, the way his spinning machines worked were, um, was something he didn't want other people to know about. He didn't want other people to copy. And so he didn't want people to get in. He didn't want industrial spies coming in to find out what's going on and so although uh, where we're sitting now on the inside of the mill there are quite big windows and Mm. you needed big windows because you need light to get into to to the spinning machines um on the outside it's incredibly severe because he didn't want people coming to peer in nose in and find out how he was doing it and it is sort of like you say walled in isn't it on all sides so you'd have to have had a reason to be coming in here you would, and of course, the very first mill, which is over there in the, the, the far back corner, mm. uh, was originally it was just a, a single mill here. Yeah. Um, that one was built in 1771. He then added another one in 1776, 1785, and eventually you get this little sort of complex, village complex. Yeah. Yes, complex. I think is a better word yeah. for these mills. But crucially, absolutely crucially, running through the middle is the water source. Yes. Because what we have to remember about Arkwright and the whole of this late 18th century phase, this is before the coming of the mineral economy. Right. This is, the, this is entirely natural sources mm-hmm. of power. Um, his mills are powered by water. And um, the harnessing of these fast-flowing rivers in the Derwent Valley mm. was the thing that made it all possible. So where, where did this water come from? And this, this is obviously why he put his site here, because of that water source, I assume. Yes, incredibly ca- carefully chosen site. We're looking around us and you can see the land rising either side. Mm. There are almost sort of cliff faces uh, yeah. uh, to our right there. Um, the land rises up the other side. Uh, uh, very steeply the water comes powering down this valley powering down and it hits this huge um, water wheel 23 feet uh, in diameter and hurtles it round and you can still see in the uh, in the side of the building the the socket in which is socking great wheel really huge um, Mm. mill uh, mill wheel went in and that was the thing that powered his um, his spinning machines Um, and of course in these early mills uh, coal power and steam engines were sometimes used, but they were used for pumping the water back up the hill right. to, to put in a reservoir to get the water cas- cascading it down, down again. I and mean, yeah. those early, early um, uh, Newcomen-type steam engines just were not good enough to power the machinery itself. They're good enough to pump a bit of water back, yeah. but they weren't. So this is entirely free from the steam engine. And has, is there was there um, sort of evidence of other people doing this type of thing at the same time or was Arkwright kind of ahead of everybody, ahead of everybody else in doing this? Well, he, he built on the precedent of Thomas Lom, who had built a, a silk mill um, mm-hmm. in Derby in 1721. But it, it wasn't the same thing. No. Um, and very, very quickly, people um, started to copy the Arkwright-type mills. And in fact, you know, by... 
1797, there were 900 cotton mills in England, um, and about a third of those were you know, essentially of the Arkwright uh, type. That's here. what, just over 25 years? Yeah, so it's astonishing, not, astonishing. Mm, um, from uh, 1 to growth. 900, it's... And of course, what you have to remember is the, 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 the capacity that this put into the economy. Yeah. Because the thing that had been slowing down the whole of the weaving industry mm. had been the ability to spin the thread. Because at this point, the weaving still goes on in cottages. It was literally a cottage industry. Yeah. And Arkwright is building here on North Street, uh, just around the corner. He's building a series of cottages with with a loom lofts at the top with big windows yep. where the men are doing the weaving. Right, okay. Whilst in the, the mill here, yeah. the women and the children are doing the spinning. Why was that? Why, why would the men have been better at doing the weaving? Why would they have done that type of work? Well, of course, before, before it's mechanised and before you have um, a power shuttle, yeah. you have to throw the shuttle right. <laughs> um, across the loom. And it is... It is it is very, very physical, um, yeah. that sort of weaving. And, you know, the, the muscle in your right arm gets very, very big. And, yeah. and if you go to a hand-weaving um, factory today, you see these men, and they're very, very tough, and they hurtle these shuttles <laughs> across. You need some muscle. You do. <laughs> I mean, just looking around, us, it's a very pretty sight, and it's certainly, to me, not sort of reminiscent of the kind of the dark satanic mills that you, you associate with the Industrial Revolution. How does this mill compare to those later to later mills? Well, you're you're quite right. Um, this is very much the sort of green and pleasant land mm. end of it. Yeah. And um, when a steam engine is invented by Bolton and Watt that uh, is good enough, is powerful enough, is efficient enough yeah. to power the machinery rather than just pumping water, uh, you get to a situation where you actually can use a steam engine mm-hmm. for the rotary power that. Yeah. Powers these um, powers these mills, and what then happens is, is that the uh, the mills are are freed from being by these water sources, mm. and the mills need to get to places where they can be supplied by coal, which means they need to be on the canal network, and um, it's actually in in Pennine Manchester, in Pennine Lancashire, in Manchester, particularly in Ancoats where the, these big mills um, develop with yeah. huge chimneys, um, you know, big boilers burning huge amounts of coal brought in by, by barges um, into the centre of town. And the people who are working in those mills are living in housing built by speculators. Mm. Um, they're not living in the beautifully made houses that you see here in Cromford. And you move from a situation where the model here was essentially the the estate village. This is a a rural agricultural model to an entirely new way of organising and housing and uh, accommodating labour, which is the urban way which we then come to associate with the as you say the dark satanic yeah. mill side of things so Arkwright actually built a, a village for his workers was that was that pres- how, when was that that built was that there from the start yes right from the start because of course he he wanted to produce the finished um, cloth and therefore he needed place places to 
put the looms mm. and the looms were put in, in, in the houses. So uh, North Street uh, is constructed with the loom lofts on the top. Yeah. And the great thing about North Street is a couple of uh, the houses belong to the Landmark Trust and you can actually go and stay in them. Can you? Yeah. Oh, that- which is really nice. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to really experience this for yourself and yeah. feel what it must have been like, you can go and stay in one of these unique houses. Oh, wonderful. And um, What sort of man was Arkwright, do you think? I mean, some people have sort of cast him as more of a shrewd businessman than a, than a kind of genius inventor. Do you think that's fair? I mean, he sort of did use other people's um, technology, didn't he, to kind of get to where he was, to that position that he could open this, like, this sort of mill? Yes, I think that um, throughout history you have people who are brilliant inventors and if they mm. don't have the business acumen, their inventions are either pinched by someone else or yeah. sink to the bottom and never heard of. So Arkwright has this remarkable blend of skills, if you like. Um, yeah. He's incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, he sees the possibilities um, of reorganising uh, the manufacturing processes in such a way that they can all be controlled in one, one place. Mm. But for me, very interestingly, he, the models he looks to are traditional models because yeah. they are the only models. Mm. There are no, you know, when you're, <laughs> he's inventing the factory. And as we, as we look over there towards that building, to me, you're looking at something that looks more like a sort of Georgian street yeah. with yes. these sash windows, you know, all piled up. But you could expect little doors. It could be a terrace. Mm. And the models that they had were very traditional models. And... It was still very much a sort of domestic-sized activity. This yeah. is, uh, I, I emphasise again, it's only with the coming of the mineral economy that things broke out from the human scale. Everything here is of a human scale. Yes, yeah. You get that feel definitely from, from, from being here. And, and what, what kind of um, reaction did he get to, to building this mill and to kind of, you know, was he, ta- he was taking, really taking people's work away from, from them in a way, um, from people who've been doing that in you know, like cottage industry. How do people feel about that? Well, I think to begin with, of course, the mills did, were, were only dealing with a very small amount of production. Mm. But um, by the end of the 18th century, um, they had certainly um, virtually wiped out any sort of cottage industry of yeah. people spinning. <laughs> yes. Because this was happening on such a big scale, so fast. And the... The, the big feature, really, is the, the, the pace of innovation, the pace of inventions, um, and the, the rapid... And the water frame is the, is the bit of machinery that he invents here that allows him to spin, but things like the flying shuttle and all sorts of mm. other bits of kit that come um, thick and fast really propel this industry, the cotton industry, into an extraordinary position yeah. um, uh, of of world dominance and literally world dominance and um, yes it not only wipes out any lot of domestic activity I mean it wipes out world activity yes yes and do you think people realise the impact that Arkwright's mill and his his invention would have have on the on England's industry well I remember first getting my my, my very first computer, which is a thing called an Amstrad, and of course one had absolutely no idea when no. I was sitting there writing my MA on an Amstrad what was about to happen to the world. One just didn't. This yeah. was um, intermediate technology then, and I don't think anybody could have, have predicted. Mm. Um, and I particularly don't think anyone could have predicted the, the, the coming of the mineral economy. No. That was the thing that really um, changed everything. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a little bit 
um, how he, he built this village for his workers. What was his relationship with the workers like? Um, did he, he, he sort of looked after them by the sounds of things and made sure that they were... Oh, it was pretty tough. Oh, okay. It was tough. It was tough. I mean, you needed to. Uh, there's, a, there's a bell out there on top yeah. of the oh, uh, right. on top of there, and when the bell rang, you came here. If you didn't get in before the gate closed, work time, you were left outside. You didn't get paid for the day. Okay. I mean, it was it was a pretty tough. It was pretty tough. Yeah. Um, however, um, no, he did in, include latrines in his um, uh, in his mill, um, and later, you know, things like you know, ventilation and things were all mm. all concerns. So. I don't think that you should start imagining the sort of the horror of ancoats in the no, sort of mid century. No, that's what I was wondering, here. yeah. So um, the mills themselves today are sort of shells. There's, there's no mm. nothing in there at the moment, but you do get a, a, a sense of the, 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 the immense space inside. Um, what would they have been like to work in? What would it have looked like if you'd walked in? It would have been quite noisy, I assume. It would have been, it would have been noisy. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been uh, they'd have kept them as light as possible, I and mean, you yeah. can see these 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 uh, are full of windows, yeah. um, and of course that was necessary because you were dealing with all these threads and everything. Um, but the air was the air was just full of dust, yeah. um, and absolutely full of dust. It made them a tremendous fire risk. Yeah. And um, these mills, of course, were um, there was a substantial amount of timber in them, and. Uh, the fires that happened in these mills were absolutely colossal. I mean, there have been a few, haven't there, here? Oh, sites. yes, I mean, mm. huge. And um, there were a number of big technical challenges these mill owners needed to, to overcome. And the sort of holy grail was the fireproof mill. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Because uh, the, the dust was incredibly easily ignited. Mm. And you, know, you suddenly light a candle, you find the whole mill blowing up. Yeah. <laughs> so it, 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 it wasn't... Um, it, it wasn't a safe environment, no. um, and um, I don't know what it was like to breathe the air, but it can't have been that great. No. Um, um, and, and they worked very long hours. Mm. Um, they worked very long hours, and um, it, was, it was life before protective state legislation, really. Yeah. And you mentioned that children also worked, worked yes. in, these, in these mills. What, what would their role have been? Well, it's obviously quite skilled tending the machines, but there are all sorts of things that little, little nimble fingers yeah. and little. Um, they were actually properly put to work. Oh and, yes, absolutely, mm. very much so. And how? I mean, now, I mean, there, there was a, a huge seven-story building here, which, which we only have the foundations for now. Um, and the, the first mill that we've been talking about was an extra two floors, I yes. believe. Um, how was it set up? So, you, did you have the the machinery at the very bottom, as you got the, where the water wheel was? How, how was the um, where were the where was all the, the you know the technology mm. where was all the work going on? Well, the key the key thing was is how you transmitted your power. Mm. Power transmission was at the heart of it because you had this huge water wheel yeah. wheel, and then you had to take from that wheel yeah. the um, the rotational power and transfer it to the other floors. Yeah. And so you had systems of bands and drives, um, all of which were made of timber. Yeah. Um, uh, taking the the power up. And um, the dimensions of the buildings were very much determined by the sizes of the spinning machines themselves. Yeah. So they were they were ranged across the the, the floors, and the, the power was was taken was taken up to them. So there was always a, going to be a limit on the size of the building. Yeah. And the the, the, the principal limiting factor, at least initially, yeah. was you know at which point the, the the drive of the power just sort of didn't become powerful enough to, to move your machines yeah. and um, ev- eventually 
uh, they managed to translate the power from from timber drives to metal power, metal yeah. drives and at that point you could have the mega mills <laughs> you know, yeah. where you had the drives just going you know, just huge the length of the mill and these these, these these huge metal mm. m- um, machines so these the mills we're looking at today were very much limited by the by the ability to transmit the power yeah and it must mean it's quite something to see to quite something to see quite noisy too yeah quite yeah. noisy so how, how, what happened to Arkwright? So he, after, after he'd opened the, these mills here, he went on to open others, did he? Yes, absolutely. Um, several just around the corner. And, and these are quite modest architecturally. And yeah. He started to you know, make them a little bit more interesting architecturally. And the one just um, up the uh, road from here, Masson Mill, um, which he built in the 18, 1780s, um, you know, has sort of Venetian windows mm. and... Uh, and mm. It becomes a little bit more pretentious, and by that stage, he's becoming extremely rich. Yeah. Um, and the mills are are objects of prestige, and you know they become they become tourist attractions. Yeah. You know, people come from far and wide to see this phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, it is a real phenomenon. And what was the next step for you know for industry? Well, the next step was was the min- coming of the mineral economy. Yeah. Um, was the invention of an effective um, uh, steam engine. Yeah. Uh, one that could 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 drive these things um and uh, coupled with that um metal metal power transmission okay. uh, and what that allows is it to expand from the cottage industry that it literally is mm. here to the absolutely vast industrial concern and the later generation of mills just dwarf what we see here yeah. this seems quite big enough especially in this rural valley <laughs> yeah. but yeah. when you get to when you get to the sort of next generation if you go to, if you go to the Ancoats mills these are huge and then yeah. you go on from there um, to the you know, to the to the big mill towns like Saltair. I mean, mm-hmm. These are just colossal buildings. Yeah. So, do you do you think the industrial revolution could have sort of happened without Arkwright and his? Do you think it would have happened at that time that it did without him and his you know his innovations? What was anything else that was going on at the same time that? Oh, there were huge happened? numbers of things going on at the mm. same time. I think people enormously underestimate um, what was happening, particularly in the navy, was very very important. Um, you know, Britain's uh, Britain was at war. Yeah. You know, this is in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. All this is happening. Yeah. You've got to remember. Yes, that's true. No, this yeah. is absolutely colossal war. This is all out war. Of a, it's a, a sort of war that the country had never experienced before. All mm. previous wars had been wars about trade and been fought between sort of oligarchies and countries trying to get trade. Yeah. This was an ideological war, mm-hmm. and um, Britain was, um, you know, it's back against the wall. It was like the sort of first Second World War. And um, the, the navy uh, were, uh, and the army were very rapidly um, industrializing themselves in a yeah. process, organizing processes. I mean, the, the block mills in Portsmouth, uh, where the Royal Navy was learning ways to manufacture hundreds of thousands of blocks for the pulleys and, and mm-hmm. on, on the, in the ships in the Royal Navy. Um, and also very big buildings. The very large industrial buildings in the na- in, built by the Navy are extremely similar to this, built at exactly the same time. Okay. So there is a process that's going on, on there. And I think that Arkwright is part of a much wider uh, a process of, for want of a better word, industrialisation. That was Simon Thurley, Chief Executive of English Heritage, on location at Cromford Mills. Simon's latest book, The Building of England, is published now by HarperCollins. 
And Simon has written a feature on Cromford Mills in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now. Also in this issue, you'll find articles on Alfred the Great, a talented Tudor matriarch, the Plantagenets, the Cold War and JFK. Look out for our December issue in all good news agents and digitally. And now we have a short advertisement break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash History Extra. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Art Under Attack, Histories of British Iconoclasm, is the first exhibition to explore the history of physical attacks on art in Britain from the 16th century to the present day. The exhibition examines the movements and causes which have led to assaults on art through objects, paintings, sculpture and archival material. Highlights include... Thomas Johnson's interior of Canterbury Cathedral, 1657, exhibited for the first time alongside stained glass, removed from the windows of the cathedral. Alan Jones's chair, 1969, is on display, as well as evidence of statues destroyed in Ireland during the 20th century. The show considers artists such as Gustav Metzger, Yoko Ono and Jake and Dinos Chapman, who have used destruction as a creative force. Art Under Attack Histories of British Iconoclasm is open at the Tate Britain until January 5th, 2014. For more information, please visit www.tate.org.uk. 1066, 1605, 1914. Some dates become synonymous with particular world events in particular countries. But what was happening elsewhere in the world at the same time? 
That's the premise of historian and author Michael Scott's new Radio 4 series, Spin the Globe, which sets out to explore the less well-known circumstances and unexplored connections of four such milestones. Our books editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Michael to find out more about the series. So what's the premise of your new series? Well, the idea behind Spin the Globe is simply this. Everyone's got these key dates drummed into their heads, you know, from innumerable school history lessons and books they've read and commemorations. And that might be 1066 or it might be 1815 or 1914. And we know what's going on in one part of the world on those key dates. It's a particular event in a particular place that's made that date famous. But what I'm interested in is is what else was going on around the world at that time? What happens if we spin the globe uh, and take a look around the world? What kind of a sense of a connected global history can we get? So how did the idea first come about? How did it first come to you? Uh, Well, to be frank, I was sitting watching the opening ceremony of the London Olympics. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking one of the commentators was saying something along the lines of, you know, everyone will remember where they are on, you know, tonight as this key moment in in, in British history. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's true. Everyone does have these moments in their lives where they just remember where they were and what they were doing. And the same goes for history. You know, the same goes for uh, these key dates that I was talking about. And that got me thinking about well, I wonder what else is going on around the world right now. Uh, you know, people who aren't watching the, the London ceremony, uh, the, uh, the opening of the Olympics. And that got me thinking then about, about what else was going on around the world in the past on these key dates as well. And as a result, Spin the Globe was born. Mm, fantastic. So which dates do you cover in the series? Well, we're kicking off uh, because we're going out, the first episode's going out soon after bonfire night. We're going to kick off with 5th of November 1605 and the gunpowder plot. Uh, and then we're going to move on to 1066, probably one of the most iconic dates that's in everyone's heads and then moving forward to 1914 because of the centenary of the uh, outbreak of world war one uh, coming up next year and as we move towards christmas we're going to be finishing up with uh, the birth and life of jesus christ fantastic so some fairly topical things in there as well yeah, I mean, that's what we want to do. The, the, the extraordinary thing about uh, about this idea and this series is that there are any number of dates that we could hit upon and pick. You know, there are any number, number of famous dates uh, that when we look back through the, you know, the history books, we could we could pick on and then spin the globe around. Um, and I think that's what makes it quite so exciting. But what we wanted to do for, for this first series is pick some dates, you know, like 1066 that are, you know, absolutely key dates in everyone's heads. You know, you can't say 1066 without thinking about 1066 and all that and uh, and our very kind of way of doing history um, and also dates which have particular relevance to uh, the centenaries coming up and to the particular time of year. Mm, brilliant thank you and so the first program is about 1605 as you say um, what other countries and events do we visit in this instalment? Well we kick off in London and, and the way we're doing each episode is to spend a moment talking with an expert um, as to you know why that particular event has made that date so famous and to bring us up to speed on the latest developments the latest insights the latest thinking um, so we start with a gunpowder plot but then we quickly spin off uh, and we're heading to Strasbourg uh, where the first printed newspaper came off the presses in 1605 and then we head a bit further abroad we're off to Russia to look at the time of troubles uh, surrounding the reign of Boris Godunov uh, and the later sort of invasion of of Poland Lithuania and the the kind of uh, extraordinary uh, difficulties that Russia faced at this time Uh, and then we're off to Persia we have a look at uh, Shah Abbas I of Persia ruling at this time and and his uh, plans and his goals and his uh, his sort of um, 
uh, tactics that he used to achieve those goals. Um, and then we skip all the way around to the New World uh, and we look at some of the very early expeditions uh, going out in 1605 towards Maine um, and the characters involved in those. And something that interests me as, as well is the way that these events sometimes kind of link into each other and affect each other. Do we get a sense of how the gunpowder plot affected these events elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think what's come out of this is fascinating. I'm not an expert in any of these periods. And so it's been as much a journey of discovery for me um, as it, uh, I hope it will be for the listeners. And every time we spin the globe, everywhere we turn, we turn to an expert in that particular period and place um, to find out, uh, you know, what are the key um, insights and ideas. And what has come out of doing that, and what I think our experts who have joined us have also found really interesting, is the way these connections come out of the earth when you when you spin the globe and, and you connect up history. And so one of the interesting ones in 1605 is that uh, the expedition going out in 1605 headed by a chap called George Weymouth um, that headed towards the coast of Maine and which uh, was there as a trading expedition to begin with was actually funded by the Duke of Norfolk, one of the uh, foremost Catholic uh, uh, sort of uh, figures in England at the time. Now, following, of course, the gunpowder plot, uh, Catholics were not in particular favour. And as as a result, the Duke of Norfolk was in no place to finance any future expeditions. But if history had been different, you know, if the gunpowder plot had not happened, then we may well have seen a, uh, a Catholic sort of exodus from England towards these new foundations in the new world in the years, in several years earlier than we did actually eventually see um, proper colonial foundations being made in the new world. And a later programme, as you say, explores 1914, which, of course, is going to be big news next year for the centenary of the First World War. But, I mean, what else was happening um, while that was looming? Next year's a, a very big year um, uh, for the the marking of, of the outbreak of war uh, in 1914. And we start the programme in the Imperial War Museum, and we're talking with the curators and the experts. Uh, and, of course, they're setting up a massive new um, exhibition um, to mark that moment and a complete redesign of their galleries. So we're there with them in situ in the middle of of the, of the construction site, um, looking at what they are choosing to focus on and how they think it's important to tell the story of 1914 um, at this important juncture. But then we spin off around the world and we're heading to, uh, for example, to Venezuela, where Venezuela struck oil in 1914 and changed the future of their country forever. Uh, we also look at the story of Gandhi. Now, Gandhi had actually come from uh, some very early successes in South Africa um, to London, where he was when war broke out in 1914. And he uh, surprised the authorities um, by supporting uh, the war effort in the best way that he could, setting up um, a particular um, ambulance corps. Uh, and that time of his in London was actually... Uh, talking with the experts, you know, quite fundamental to his later thinking. But we also then head off to German East Africa, uh, where we look at the completion of an absolutely extraordinary railway that went all the way inland from Dar es Salaam. Uh, and we're also spinning the globe to New York, where despite the war clouds that were gathering in Europe, uh, in the dance scene of New York in 1914, it was the foxtrot that was invented. Um, and our expert here, well, we couldn't think of a better dancing expert than to turn to Len Goodman, the chairman of the judges of Strictly Come Dancing, and we caught up with him in his dressing room at Planet Strictly um, to talk about the foxtrot with him. Um, you touched there on uh, all these events happening kind of in the lead-up to the war. Do we get a sense of uh, if people were aware that war was coming? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I, I mean, obviously, certainly within Europe, very much so. Uh, 
and if you spin the globe out to um, somewhere like New York, I mean, obviously our focus is much more of a cultural kind of hotspot, and, and there you get much less uh, of a sense, particularly in 1914, that, that people's minds were focused on these things. Out in Venezuela, the you know the situation in Venezuela with the discovery of the oil, as we were finding out, um, is such that you know people were struggling to um, come to terms with this in many ways invasion uh, of, of their country and also to deal with the way in which those oil revenues were then being parceled out um, in, in, in a pretty crooked manner to be honest as we discovered so I think there the focus was very much on on survival and, and the country's own interests uh, as much as it was on, on the wider world. Mm. You mentioned there as well that you visited the Imperial War Museum um, what places did you visit and sources that you used were most useful or most surprising I suppose? Um, well, what we've tried to do, as I said, is is every time we spin the globe and, and with each event that we start with, we've we've turned to the experts and you know they've been our guides to to help us understand and unlock these different worlds um, that are all united by by the time at which they happened. So, you know, in terms of sources, we're at the hands in the hands of our experts to, to sort of direct us to some of the most important uh, readings and sources. And in some cases in the programmes, we're bringing those readings to the audience as well. So we're reading excerpts from particular key texts, um, uh, for example. And we've also been in the British Museum, uh, where we've been looking at some uh, beautiful images of Shah Abbas I of Persia, for instance, and working with the experts, thinking about what those images were supposed to say. And we've also been to the British Library, so there we were looking at some early versions of uh, Sima Guang's uh, comprehensive uh, aid to uh, comprehensive mirror to aid in government, I should say, is the English translation, which was his uh, fantastic eight volume history um, of, uh, of Chinese history that was supposed to be uh, a sort of tool to help those be uh, those in government be better at governing. And are there any themes that started to emerge as you put these programmes together? Um, Yes, I mean, I think in in, in some ways, uh, by spinning the globe uh, around a particular time, we've been interested to 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 try and vary the sorts of things that we're looking at. You know, maybe war, maybe politics, maybe culture. But at the same time, if there is a theme that that's come out, I guess it's it's the unexpected connections. I think that would be the theme that's really struck me. I mean, one of the most surprising things that that I've discovered in this journey is is with the 1066 uh, program, and there, of course, we know about William, Duke of Normandy, uh, invading England in the Battle of Hastings. Um, but it's also the case that the Normans had been very active down in southern Italy and Sicily fighting against the Byzantine Empire. Um, and it just so happens that the King Harold of Norway, who actually also invaded England, and of course King Harold of England had to go and fight at Stamford Bridge just days before he then marched south to deal with William at Hastings, that King Harold of Norway had actually trained and learnt much of his skills in fighting by being a member of the Byzantine Empire's sort of special elite force, if you like, fighting against the Normans down in southern Italy and Sicily. So here you have an extraordinary piece of connected global network history um, that I think was really quite surprising uh, to bring to the fore. Mm-hmm. And if you had to stop the globe um, at a particular date or place that you've covered in the series, which would you choose? Would you be able to choose just one? 
Oh, that's a tough one. I, I, I mean, I think each has their own uh, merit and interest. And, and what's been quite interesting is, is, is what you can do with the dates that are that are closer to us in the calendar. Um, obviously, it's been easier. There's a lot more sources to be able to um, turn to. The, the, the last program we look at, thinking back to you know much more my period of the ancient world, where I specialise in, and, and the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, here is, is it's a different kind of history we have to do because the sources talk to us in very different ways. And so it's been fascinating to look at some of the, uh, for example, sort of bigger trends and shifts that are happening in civilizations like with the Mayans and in Mesoamerica, but also in Korea. Um, and at the same time, to look at some of the, the developing technologies around that time. So, uh, for example, we look at the invention of glass blowing. And in terms of the dates that you perhaps would have liked to cover, but you didn't have chance to in this series... Oh, I think that's the joy of spin the globe. You know, there are so many dates that we could go to. And, you know, I'm very much hoping that uh, the audience will enjoy this series and that Radio 4 will uh, bring us back next year to to do another. So, you know, let's uh, let's hope that we can get lots more dates uh, and, and spin the globe with them. Fantastic. And finally, uh, what message do you hope the listeners will take away from the series? I, I think it's this. I like many, you know, many people will have these 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 strong and important historical dates carved into my mind, and they are strong and important dates. But I think the problem with them is that they give us something of a, a spotlit version of history, um, and what we're missing are the connections. And what I think Spin the Globe does uh, very effectively and very interestingly is to help uh, us all develop a better connected sense of global history and I really hope that that's what uh, the listeners uh, feel that they come away with and they've gained from listening to Spin the Globe That was Michael Scott Spin the Globe continues on Radio 4 on Tuesday the 19th of November and you can listen to the first episode again online at the BBC iPlayer radio site Well that's almost all for this week as always, do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll try and read out some of your messages in future episodes. One of our listeners who got in contact recently was Stephen Coulson from Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Stephen writes, I've been listening to your History Extra podcasts for a few years now. They've been steadily improving in content and production values over time. Your podcast from the 31st of October, however, was exceptional. I thoroughly enjoyed both the topics covered and I found the approach of visiting a historic attraction and investigating its history more engaging than the regular author interviews. The macabre slant on the Hungerford Castle segment, particularly in the crypt, was fascinating. Good job. Please keep up the good work. I'd love to hear more podcasts from other historical sites around the UK. Thanks for that, Stephen, and I do hope you've enjoyed today's trip to Cromford Mills. And if any of you would like to listen to the episode that Stephen was referring to, you can still find it on our website, historyextra.com forward slash podcasts, as well as on iTunes and other podcast providers. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra. And of course, we're on Facebook too, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find lots of history news, blogs, features, image galleries, quizzes, and much, much more. Next time, we'll be joined by Alison Weir to talk about Elizabeth of York, while historian Mark White will be considering the presidency of JFK on the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Please do join us for that. 
The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and on location in Derbyshire and produced by Jack Fletcher. 